Thank you, Christy. Good morning, everyone. My name is B, and I'm an alcoholic. And uh, before I get into my favorite topic, which is myself, I um, would like to thank you, Pat, for inviting me wherever he went. And uh, he's got his glasses off, so I didn't recognize him. And I would like to um, thank Christy and her cohorts for coming to get me at the airport at an ungodly hour of the night. Delighted to be reunited with some people I haven't seen in a while, like Sally and Albert and Herb, and uh, with Nancy, who I knew many years ago in the early years of my sobriety. I find now that everywhere I go, I meet somebody I know, which means that I have to be a good girl, and uh, don't do being a good girl too well. But um, anyway, I'm delighted to be with you, and uh, it's just uh, a great way to start a Sunday morning, I think. Now, if my God were to ask me and appear to me at this moment, and I don't know why she doesn't, because, um, you know, uh, strange, she doesn't. Just want to wake up, um, I want to wake up you little old Catholics there, whom I noticed from church who are already awake. But anyway, if my God were to ask me, where would you rather be at this moment, be? You know, is there any place else you'd prefer to be at this time? I would say, no, thank you, God. I would just, I'm just delighted to be here. This is, just seems like it's it. And what I came here all the way from California to tell you is that everything in my life was wonderful until I was two. <laughs> now, you can tell by looking at me that I have a long ways to go, so I hope you're comfortable in those chairs you're sitting on. Uh, when I was two, my little sister was born, and uh, that was not according to my designs, because um, I was the, in charge of that family. I was the firstborn and the oldest, and it seemed to me that I belonged in the center. And if you're interested in knowing some more about me after today, which you may or may not be, you might want to read page 62 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, because on page 62 there are two complete paragraphs, and they describe me rather well. It says that I, I sort of have a tendency to want to be in the center, and I want the world and life to revolve around me. It's called, <laughs> it's called selfishness and self-centeredness, but, you know, we don't tell anybody that out there. We just know this little part ourselves in here. Anyway, um, my parents adored this child, my sister, and um, it seemed and felt to me that there just wasn't space for me. Now, they never told me that, but I just felt that they just didn't have the spot for me that they used to have. And then, being typically Irish and Catholic, we went on uh, having children in our family. And we had a, a boy the next year, and then we had a girl, and then we had a girl, and we ended up with five of us. And every time a new child came into the family, it just felt to me that I didn't fit any longer, that I was being pushed out to the sidelines or to the periphery of this family. And one day my daddy went to work, and he never did come home because he was killed in an accident. And what I know today is that that was kind of traumatic for me, and I didn't know how to do grief or loss or mourning or any of the things we learn a lot about how to do today. But what I do remember is that my mom told me that on the day of his funeral, she said, B, I want you to help me to raise these children. And I put away my dolls and my playthings and all the things that you do as a little girl of eight years of age, and I started about this business of growing up, which hasn't happened for me yet. <laughs> I need to let you know that very early on, because uh, I believe that I have a wonderful chance of being able to do this business of growing up if I stay around people like you but I didn't have a clue before I got here. And when I, you know, my mom was one of these people. She was, um, she was a school teacher, 
And uh, she believed that probably we would all be widowed by the time we were 32, like she was. And uh, she taught me everything she knew. She taught me how to clean and cook and babysit. And she taught me all kinds of school teachery things. In fact, my mom taught me what it says on page 60 of the big book. It says on page 60 something like this. Is she, is he, not a victim of the delusion that she can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if only she will manage well? And I thought my whole business in life was to learn how to manage well. And uh, when I got into my teenage years, I did what most people do. I started thinking about what I would want to be doing for the rest of my life. And what I want to tell you now is that my decision at that time, in those years, was to become a saint. (laughs) Now, at many conferences that I go to, and all of the meetings I go to, we read the whole portion, you know, from chapter 5, where it says, we are not saints. We're learning to grow along spiritual lines. That always hurts my feelings, you know, because I kind (laughs) of thought I was in this saint business for a long time. And in trying to become a saint, the only way that I knew how to become a saint then was to become a Catholic nun. And um, I want you to know that I'm still doing Catholic nun. I've been a Catholic nun for 42 years, 7 months, and 4 days. And uh, if you're wondering... Thank you. If you're wondering why I would have it right down to the, you know, exact day... Uh, I always say to groups like this, especially when I'm far away from home and my sponsors can't hear me, I always say, if you've been doing celibacy that long, you'd be counting too. <laughs> now, I'm not, I'm not supposed to say that. So you can tell that I'm not that well yet. But uh, I've been doing this nunny business for a long time. And uh, I'm delighted. I, it never has occurred to me to do anything else. I just loved it. And I still love it. I love my vocation. I love the whole deal. And you might be wondering, you little old Catholics there whom I met this morning early, where did I get my booze? (laughs) I stuck around people like you and I got plenty of booze. (laughs) But anyway, uh, sometimes, you know, when I'm in an audience this large, there are one or two people, maybe, maybe one and a half people, who would have a resentment against somebody like me. And uh, I always leave a space, you know, here for you to leave if you want to. Because, uh, however, I always like to say that I didn't do it to you, you know. Uh, some people, uh, you know, end up with lots of resentments against all kinds of churches. <laughs> what I discovered since I got into Alcoholics Anonymous, I discovered this big secret, which I'm usually not supposed to say either. I've discovered that there are assholes every place. <laughs> Honestly. There are, it's true, there are Catholic assholes and Baptist assholes and Lutheran assholes and Methodist assholes. And... Uh, I've even met a couple of Jewish assholes here and there. And, and now this only applies to California. This only applies to California. I have even met a few assholes in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> Just the way it is. Um, I'm also a member of Al-Anon. I haven't found any in Al-Anon yet. But, uh, I'm not that, that long in Al-Anon. I've only been in Al-Anon for over a year. So I would keep coming back there and let you know as I go along what I find. But, you know, I find that human beings are human beings, and human beings make mistakes, and they do things all mixed up, and they get all things wrong, and sometimes we have a tendency to put all all people into one category, and God bless us, we're sort of, we get mixed up, you know. 
Anyway, I started into this nunny bunny business um, way back, 1950, and uh, long before lots of you were born, I was just looking at some of your young faces last night at the banquet and thinking, it's wonderful, you have this program at such an early age. And I started out about the business of becoming a saint. And uh, my, my bosses, my superiors, thought that I had a few brains here and there, and they sent me over to England to finish my education. And when I was all done with my education at the University of London, I just thought that I knew a little bit about everything. Now, I don't know if I have any friends here, but that's called arrogance. But, you know, you may not ever have heard of that before. But, you know, this thing that, you know, you just know, you have a little bit of an opinion on, on all things. And I knew how to do uh, primary education and secondary education. And I had opinions on all aspects of education. And I was in, finished in England way, way back there in the 50s. And um, one day, uh, you know, a funny thing happened in my head. Now, this will be kind of amazing to some of you who might be new, because you might be thinking, what has this got to do with alcoholism? And I love where it says in the book, where it says that, you know, alcohol is but a symptom of our problem. We have to get down to the causes and conditions. And I believe that all of the components that made up my life are part of the causes and conditions that brought me to this day with you here. And so what happened for me in my head was that a voice would go off on a regular basis. And this voice would say, if only they would shape up, I would feel better. Now, they could be anybody. They could, could be the people with whom I lived, with whom I worked, the parents of the children I taught. It could be the government. It could be anybody. It didn't have to be anybody specific. And so I started to experience a lot of uncomfortable feelings. And the uncomfortable feelings were sort of feelings of being different and separate and not belonging and apart from and loneliness. And I wasn't sure exactly what they were. At the same time, I wanted to continue doing what I was doing, but I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what these feelings were. And one day I came home from school, and on our bulletin board there was a notice, a letter that had come from Ireland. And the letter said, would any of you like to go to Southern California and volunteer to do that because we're starting a new place there? And, you know, I just knew that I belonged in Hollywood, so I signed up, and they picked me, and I went back to Ireland to do all my paperwork, and as I was leaving to go to Southern California, my bosses, my superior said to me, Sister, we're going to put you in charge. Now, there is nothing that a budding potential alcoholic likes to hear better than they're going to be put in charge. The book talks about that over and over again. We love to do that. We love to run the show and fix the lights and the ballet, and we like to conduct it and orchestrate it exactly the way that we think it should be done. And so I knew that everything was going to be fine if I would go to California, because now I was going to be in charge. And that meant I was going to be the principal of the school. I was going to be the mother superior of the nunny bunnies. And um, I was just going to whip everything in Southern California into shape. And it was grand. And so I arrived in Southern California in August of 1964, and I was dressed in all the nunny clothes, if you've ever seen people like me. Uh, we had black serge, and we had white starch all over our heads. In fact, if you'd be interested, there's a picture of us on the bottle of Blue Nun wine, or somewhat like us. <clears throat> I never counted that. I never thought that counted, because I thought it had a sort of a holy aroma from it. And... Uh, Anyway, I arrived in Southern California, and everything was fine. Everything was fine for about five or six days. And after that time, I was to meet the pastor. 
Now, I don't know how much you know about people like that, but um, he had this idea that he was in charge. <laughs> and I knew that I was in charge. And immediately we started to lock horns. We started to fight. I don't know if you've ever tried to fight nice, you know, where you didn't want anybody to know what was going on, but all your insights were churning up and you were planning his demise on a regular basis. I was writing these letters on him and in my head and I was thinking, how can I get rid of him? If only he would shape up, I certainly would feel better. And some of the same old feelings started to return. Feelings of not fitting, not belonging, restlessness, irritability, <laughs> and discontentedness which is the description in the doctor's opinion for the alcoholic. But I hadn't had a drink yet, and I was very uncomfortable. But one day a marvelous thing happened for me, and that was that a lady came to my office door, and she, she asked me, would, would we all like to go over and swim at our swimming pool after school because we were experiencing the Santa Ana wind, which is very hot and muggy and sticky. And so we all went over there in the station wagon, you know, we piled all the nanny bunnies into the station wagon and we went over to her swimming pool and we changed into our swimsuits and had a great time. And when we were all done, she came to the side of the pool with a tray and a large pitcher and some glasses. And on the top of the glasses, there was salt. You're pretty bright here, you know. Very impressed about that always because you seem to know what was in the picture. I say that uh, really because uh, I just got back from Australia a week or two ago, and when you tell them that in Australia, they go, yeah, goes right over their heads. It doesn't seem like they're as familiar with margaritas as we are. And my personal opinion, which is all it is, is that if you haven't had a margarita, <laughs> you probably don't belong here yet. <laughs> You know, I'll never forget what that did for me. It was the most magnificent. It was a real spiritual awakening. A margarita was a real spiritual awakening. It, it, you know, it hit me in the back of my neck first. I have this thing called scoliosis, and I suffer from back problems. I did a lot in those days. And it just seemed like it took away all pain and all discomfort, and it went right down to every, the tip of my fingers, all down my whole body, into my legs and into my feet and into my toes, and I just knew that I'd been missing something very important in life and that I must get the recipe from this woman and take it home and whip it up on a regular basis for the nanny bunnies who work so hard because they work for me. And so I asked the lady for the recipe and she gave it to me and I took it home. And I would say to the nanny bunnies, are you, uh, are you tired? Well, you know, because they work for me, they were always tired. Uh, I was one of these more hyperactive alcoholics. Now, we come in different forms. Some of us come with a sort of an easygoing, laid-back type of attitude. I'm one of your more um, hyper-alcoholic women. And uh, I'm the kind of person who would say on a Friday, when we were all finished and everybody was exhausted in school, I would say, let's change all the classrooms. Let's move the first graders into the eighth grade, the second graders into the seventh grade, the third graders into the seventh Let's move around here. Let's get some action. Because I was of the opinion that if you change the environment and if you change everything, that you could feel better inside. And if I'm not hyper-vigilant about my program today, I will have this delusion. I will have this delusion that if I can change them, him, her, it, the universe, that I can feel better. That's where I've come from. I've come from feeling that somehow 
I needed to change everything around me so that I could feel better. And so they were always tired because they were always having to do all this hyperactive stuff. And then we go home on the weekends and we clean the conference from top to bottom. We'd move all the furniture there. We'd, I was just really terrible. And they were always tired. They were always exhausted. So when I would say, are you tired? They'd say, yes, we are. We're very tired. So I'd say, well, let's just relax and celebrate this evening. Now, what I meant when I said relax and celebrate, I meant let's have a drink. Now, they didn't necessarily mean that, but um, they got to know, finally, that I did mean that. And uh, what I noticed about them from the very beginning was that they never wanted to drink the same way as I wanted to drink. They never did. They, they were always saying like things like, we will have, let's have these little glasses. They were always interested in little glasses. And they did things that I just didn't understand, and I still don't understand. They would sip. You know, they would sip, and then they would never finish. Do you understand people who don't finish alcohol? I don't understand people like that. I sit in airplanes a lot today, and I still don't understand when people will order a, a cocktail and they won't finish, and they'll take out their computer or their briefcase and they'll start working, and the students will come along and they'll say they're finished, and they'll take it away, and it's not finished. I don't understand that. I truly don't. And I noticed that my drinking was different right from the word go. Now, I was kind of smart in my head, and I knew that I knew that if I were to become an alcoholic, it would be a very bad thing. And so I worked really hard at doing what the big book says that you and I can't do. It says that we cannot control and enjoy our drinking. It says that in chapter 3. And it says that it's the great obsession of every abnormal drinker that somehow, someday, we'll be able to do that. And I worked very, very hard, very, very hard at trying to do those two things together because I didn't know, I didn't know that I was in the grip, the grip on the back of my neck of a progressive illness called alcoholism. I didn't know that because I had a lot of information in my mind about God, about willpower, about, you know, what you do and how you pray, and oh, I, I just knew that if you pray hard enough, and if you do all these good things, that somehow you'll be able to, to get this thing down to a science. I'm here to tell you that God and I, God and I by ourselves, could never keep me sober. God and I could never keep me sober. And so for years and years and years, I picked my spots. I picked the places I drank, I picked the places I was, was, people I was with, I was very careful. I was what you would call a very controlled drinker. And what I learned about me was that if I controlled my drinking, I could never enjoy it. And when I enjoyed my drinking, I could never control it. So those two things could never be done by me. I could never do the two things together. And so the great obsession that I lived with for a long time was that somehow, someday, I was going to be able to do that. And so I picked my spots. And one of the spots that I picked to drink was Mexico. There was this gentleman in our parish, and he had a trailer down in Estero Beach in Ensenada. And he said to me one day, Sister, we hardly ever use this trailer. Why don't you go down there because you work so hard? And he gave me the keys. And there were three keys, and he handed me the, them. And he said, this is the key of the front door, and this is the key of the cabana. And, Sister, this little key is the key of the liquor cabinet. Help yourself. 
And I said, praise God from whom all blessings flow. <laughs> and I said to the nunny bunny, you know what? Pretty soon more than 50% of Southern California will be Hispanic, and we will have to learn how to speak Spanish. So let's get down there to Mexico as often as we can and learn how to speak Spanish. So pile all the nunny bunnies into the big station wagon, and we would go down there in long weekends and short weekends and long holidays and short holidays, and we would start trying to learn how to speak Spanish with all the Americans and the Canadians who were in the Sierra Beach. But you know, I didn't know any of that stuff. I didn't know that denial is the the disease, and I truly thought I was doing that. But what I know today was that I had one purpose for going down to Mexico, and that was to drink. And I would come back on Sunday nights, and Mondays I would have very bad hangovers, but I would keep on moving, you know, I'd keep on doing it, I'd keep on working, and the, the, the more guilt I felt and the more remorse I felt, the harder I worked, because I thought, you know, if you work very hard, then there has to be a reward at the end. I don't know if any of you were reward drinkers. I drank for reward, because if I worked this hard, then surely there was a little drinky poo at the end of the tunnel, and I was in many, many tunnels. And I started to to sort of uh, do things and say things and, and be places that I didn't want to be in. And uh, the nunny bunnies used to say to me things like, oh my, but you were something last night. Now, I'm not sure to this day exactly what that was. I know I just got back from Australia, and I've been to Australia a number of times and was in Australia in my drinking years, too. And I asked them this time to tell me some things that I might have done. And uh, I'll tell you, I was kind of embarrassed at some of the things that I did. But um, I didn't know. See, I didn't know this stuff. All I knew was that I had to drink in order to take the edge off of my life. And I had to drink because this phenomenon, <laughs> the book tells us it's called the phenomenon of craving for alcohol, was very much present in my life. And I would be, you know, wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning, and all I'd want to do at 2 o'clock in the morning was drink. And our stories disclose in a general way, and our stories are all different. And uh, it's interesting, you know, how they're different, but they're very much the same. Because you and I have had the same sorts of feelings. And I would love to start off with you here, Pat, and I'd love to go around the room, and I meet each one of you, whether you're alcoholic or uh, the member of an alcoholic family, a member of Al-Anon or whatever you are, and finish up here with Christy, and look at you in the eye and say to you, when did you die? Do you know where you were? Do you know where you were standing? Were you in jail? Were you in a hospital? Were you trying to function highly on a job? Were you feeling desperate? Where were you? And as I say that to you, I'm remembering Bill Wilson's words that he used on page 8 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And what he says is that no words can tell of the loneliness and the bitter morass of self-pity that he found himself in when alcohol had become his master and quicksand had stretched out around him and he had found his match and he was overwhelmed and he did not know where to go and he did not know what he was going to do next. And I'm here to tell you that when I was dying 14 plus years ago, when I was dying, I was in a convent. And I didn't have anybody that I knew that I could tell this big secret to. And the big secret that I had to tell to somebody was that I was continuing to plan my drinking. I was continuing to drink as often as I could and as much as I could. 
and look for as many excuses to drink as possible, and I couldn't tell that to anybody. And what I know about me was that I was dying inside. And I said to myself, I know what I'll do. I'll stop drinking. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to do that. I stopped drinking for a little while, and as I stopped drinking, I started to shake and kind of get strange, and I couldn't sleep at night. And I went to the doctor, and I said, I think I'm having a nervous breakdown. And he asked me to tell him his, my schedule, and I did. And he said, oh, my goodness, sister, you're overstressed, you're overworked. And he gave me Elevil and Stelazine, and then he graduated me after a little while into Valium and Librium. Now, I had these four open prescriptions, and he thought that I would do what I was told. I don't do what I'm told real well, so I would mix these up a little bit, and I would... For some reason, I didn't get hooked on prescription drugs. I, I would never know why, except that they made me feel like the music on Twilight Zone. <laughs> na, 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 you know, whoa, way out there. I wasn't... Alcohol was definitely the drug of my choice. And uh, I got rid of the prescription drugs for some reason. And I went back to drinking, and I got uncomfortable again, and I started to die again, and I was feeling miserable. And then I said, I know what I'll do. I'll pray more. I'll pray. And the God that I knew then is not the God that I know now. Because the God that I knew then was a little, incy, wincy, teensy, wincy, tiny, little, small, very small, Catholic God, you know? Very Catholic, tiny God. Now, I'm not saying... All people's concept of a Catholic God is small, but mine was. And this idea that I had was that I could bargain with this God, you know, and that if I did this, God would do that, and if I, you know, if I was a good girl, God would reward me. And I felt that I had to earn and merit God's love and God's grace. (laughs) I had no idea about God loving me unconditionally, or as Father told us at Mass this morning, about God loving me outrageously. I had no idea about that part. I just knew that I had to work hard and perform and and be good for God and be perfect for God and then maybe one day I would be worthy. Good Catholic word, worthy, you know, and able somehow to merit God's grace. And so um, I had this little tiny God and I decided I was going to pray more. So I went up to Northern California and... um, I started to pray. I made a 30-day retreat, and I prayed, and I fasted, and I fasted, and I prayed. And on about the 15th day, the director of the retreat told us that we didn't have to do any of the retreat exercises that day. And the other people there said to me, is there anything special you'd like to do today? And I said, yes, I would like to visit the Napa Valley. And I thought, you know, that that was being cultured. If you went to visit the wineries where they would give you those godforsaken little glasses, where you would drink and taste the wine. But I knew that on the 30th day that this thing that I had would be gone. Now, I was not planning on not drinking. I was planning on controlling and enjoying my drinking, that one of the days that I'd be able to get this little click where I would know I'd had enough and that I would be okay and that I wouldn't be thinking about it all the time. That's really what I was praying for. And on the 30th day, what I remember the most was that I was thirstier than ever. And I went back home to my convent, and I started to drink again. And I started to die. I started to die inside. And I got very angry with God. You don't look like you experienced that. You look like you're very saintly looking from where I can see you here. And I want to let you know that I was very, very angry at God. 
because I had given my physical being to God. I decided I wasn't going to get married and have my own children. I give my life over to be dedicated to God, to do his work in a special sort of vocation. And now what was wrong with me? What was the matter with me that all I wanted to do was drink? What had gone sour? What was it? You know, I couldn't figure out. I was really angry at God. And I can remember waking up at 2.12 in the morning and going down to our little chapel in the conference that we have there and giving God the finger. (laughs) Now, the eighth graders had taught me how to do that. They had taught me how to give the finger. So I would say, you know, God, what's going on here? I'm very angry at you. You don't care about me. What have I done? What is it that I didn't do? I worked very hard, and I did this, and I did that, and I went here, and I went there, and I taught school, and I was tired, and I did this, and I helped stones. Well, what, what is it that I didn't do right, that I ha- I'm so upset, and I, all I want to do is drink? And I was very mad at God. And my whole life was falling apart, and I didn't know, I didn't know the words of our steps, that my whole life was becoming unmanageable. Didn't know about the unmanageability. Nor did I know that my unmanageability was permanent. I didn't know that at all. Nor did I know that I was powerless. And so I prayed and I prayed and I got mad and got mad and I didn't know what to do. And one day I was standing in our living room and I picked up a little pamphlet and on the very back page of the pamphlet there was an ad and the ad said, Sister, are you concerned about your drinking? If so, call the following number, collect. And I called this number which was, happened to be in Massachusetts, and it was 9 o'clock at night and midnight their time. And I told this lady a lot of lies. Now, I was not capable of telling the truth. I told her that I was changing jobs. That part was true. I told her I was moving from being a school principal into a very high administrative job in the diocese, but that I was very concerned about the people with whom I would be working because a lot of them were drinkers. And I didn't know, I didn't know how to help them. And I would be working with lots of other nuns and priests. And what was I going to do? She was very kind and patient with me. And she told me that she would send me some literature. And she told me about uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. And she told me about recovery hospitals. And she told me lots of things. And uh, I was just about to hang up the telephone and um, bid her a good evening. Because if she was going to send me literature, I knew I could read. And that I would know how to do this deal called controlling and enjoy my drinking. And just as I was about to hang up, she said to me, Sister, would you like to tell me a little bit about your own drinking? I have great respect for the people in Massachusetts because uh, I thought she was very smart to be able, uh, very nosy altogether to be able to say that. And then she said to me something that's extraordinary and something that you and I experience on a regular basis if we're doing a lot of 12-step work, and I'm sure we are. She said, I can hear pain in your voice. And you and I get to hear the pain in one another's voices. And we get to see the pain in one another's eyes. And because God lets us do that, we get to cooperate in the healing process with one another. And when she said that to me, I can hear pain in your voice. I broke down and I was able to cry into the telephone to this strange person whom I'd never met. And I told her I did not know where to go, to whom I could speak, or what I was going to do. And in a very beautiful, gentle way, this woman told me that it might be a good idea if I would go to some meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and try to listen for some identity, because she seemed to think that, that I was just, I had no place else to go but to go down. 
I had impressed her a lot. I told her about all the degrees I had and how smart I was and how important I was and how famous I was. And uh, she listened so gently and so attentively and so patiently. And anyway, she said she would send me some books and all, but advised me to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I called AA the next day. Now, in those days, as I mentioned, I used to be kind of famous and important. And I was really afraid to go to Alcoholics Anonymous because I was afraid that I would meet anybody that I would know. And so what I decided to do was go to a meeting that was far away from where I live. I live in North Orange County in California, and so I decided to go into Los Angeles County, and I went into a place called Whittier to my first AA meeting on a Wednesday morning at 10 o'clock. And I can always remember what I did. I changed from my nunny clothes into regular clothes, and I put on a whole bunch of eye makeup. And um, I went into this little clubhouse that was called Serenity Hall in Whittier. Now, in Serenity Hall in Whittier, my perception, only my perception of what I saw there was um, lots of little old men shuffling around Serenity Hall, lots and lots of smoke, and two women. And one woman left and one stayed. And the one who stayed was, as we say in Ireland, she was not the full shilling. Or as I've heard it said before, she was um, one taco short of a combination plate. (laughs) She was clapping and talking and uh, sort of shouting out at the wrong times. And and I remember I was real uncomfortable. Anyway, this fellow got up to the podium and he was sharing with us his experience, strength and hope. And I was fascinated by him because he was telling us his story and he told us he had been to jail and now he had gotten his children back and things were better for him now. But what was fascinating to me was that he was using a vocabulary that I used to punish the 8th graders for writing on the bathroom walls. (laughs) He was using a word that starts with sh, which you probably don't know here. But then, after a little while, he graduated into another word that started with F. I can see some of you have learned your phonics. And what was interesting to me was that he was using the F word in sentences. He was using the F word in various parts of speech, like noun, verb, adjective, adverb, preposition, conjunction, and direction. And he was using the F word with I-N-G on the end and E-D on the end. And on one occasion, he even used it with the word mother before it. And I said, and this is going to be my spiritual leader for the rest of my life. And at the very end, we were holding hands and they said, keep coming back, it works. And I got into my car and I was crying And I didn't want to be an alcoholic, and I never wanted to go back there again. And I was truly upset. And um, I looked at myself in the rearview mirror as I was at a stop sign, and all of this stuff that I put on my eyes was coming down my face. And I was a sorry sight. And I said the chef word and the fuck word all the way home to the contest. And I have to be careful, you know, in my life, the circles that I move around in. 
But um, you know, I did not want to be an alcoholic. Now I sponsor a lot of people, and I know there are a lot of you here who feel this way too. That the minute you put your foot into Alcoholics Anonymous, you knew that you were home. I want you to know that I didn't know I was home for a long time. I come from the north of Ireland, and the graffiti that we write in our walls in the, in the north of Ireland is, no surrender. You know, we don't surrender well. And they'll tell you weird things in Alcoholics Anonymous in California. They'll say, B, you have to surrender. You have to let go. And then you say, how do you let go? And they say, well, you have to hang in. Nothing, they say, makes any sense, you know. It just doesn't make any sense. They were saying some strange things to me at these meetings, and I didn't want to do any of them. They said, don't drink, or don't use any mind-altering drugs. Go to meetings. And because of this other problem that I have, <coughs> excuse me, called arrogance, I didn't want to follow directions and do anything that anybody was telling me because, you see, I had all this God stuff, all this God notion, a degree on God, <coughs> information on God, and I thought somehow I was special. And I thought that I would be able to find some real elite group or place or way to do this thing without having to do it the same way as everybody else was doing it, and as is designed in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I fought this program with every ounce of my being. And they said, read the book. Now, I read the book. And because I'm an English major from the University of London, I didn't care for the way they wrote the book. <laughs> I took great exception to the syntax in the grammar of the book. And so I took the book to the beach, and I corrected it one day. <laughs> and I was hoping that somebody would appreciate that, you know what I mean? And I took it to Serenity Hall, and I told them this, and they said, keep coming back, B. <laughs> and then they said I had to get a sponsor. Now, you know, we say this in the program. I'm saying this especially for you new people who might be here. We say get a sponsor, and we say it rather easily and glibly, like it's easy, you know. If you don't trust anybody, it's not easy to get a sponsor. It's very difficult, especially if you're like me, and you're Irish, and you're reserved, and you're not about to tell your secrets or yourself to anybody, you know. It's really hard. And so what I did was I interviewed some ladies, and I hired them temporarily, and I fired them. Remember I told you I was very arrogant? And then they said I had to work the steps. And I didn't think there was anything in the steps that would enhance what I already knew, because I had lots of knowledge, you see. Lots of knowledge. Fact is, folks, I had too much knowledge. I had too much stuff up here. I had too many old ideas up here that I had to get rid of. And one person said to me one day, you know, B, we have to get rid of our old ideas. And sometimes we have to get rid of a lot of our good old ideas, what we thought were our good old ideas. And I didn't think that I would have to do that because I thought I was sort of elite and special. I had all this God stuff. You know, I have a ring in my finger that says I belong to God. You know, I had no problem knowing about a God because God was God and I was Mrs. God, so I was in charge. So, you know, here I am. 
and I thought I might be God's gift to Alcoholics Anonymous if they would just do it the way I thought they should be doing it, you know, and they were real weird. And I didn't drink, and I didn't drink, and the only reason I didn't drink was because I was afraid they'd know. And the women around that area, they're very nosy, very curious. They have a word in Australia that they use, I kind of like the way they describe that. Anybody who's curious or nosy, they call them sticky beaks. You know, they stick their beaks out like this, and they... The, the, the women around that area were like sticky beaks. They would kind of ask you questions like, where do you live and what do you do? And um, I would say, this is an anonymous program. <laughs> As one of those women, you know, and I, I have very little tolerance for people like that today. And I have to remember that I was like this. And I was miserable in Alcoholics Anonymous. I was really miserable not drinking. And so I went to Serenity Hall one day in Whittier, and I was crying. In fact, uh, they used to call me the crying nun there because I was always crying. Now, I didn't know they called me the crying nun. If I had known that, I probably wouldn't have, uh, <laughs> I probably wouldn't have stuck around. And uh, this older member of the program, who has since passed away, took me aside, and he said to me, B, you're always miserable. And this program is supposed to help us to be happy, joyous, and free. Now, I did not know that. And uh, he told me where to find that in the book. And he said, you know, we absolutely insist on enjoying life. And I told him I didn't want to do this, and I didn't like that, and I didn't want to get a sponsor, and I didn't like the book. And I told him, oh, told him, just talked his ear off, and I was crying and sobbing. And he looked at me with such gentleness and such compassion. And he said, B, this might work for you. Now, I always pass this on because this secret that this man told me has worked for me up to this day. And he said, this might work for you. He said, why don't you go home and ask God to give you the willingness to change your attitude? And so I went home, and I would love to tell you that there was a rainbow and that there, were, uh, there was a burning bush or there were angels or, you know, something grandiose. But I'm here to tell you that I did get on my knees, and I asked God to give me the willingness to change my attitude, and the willingness to do the program as it was designed by the people who designed it, and to do the program that worked for so many people who had gone before me. And I asked God, I believe, in a very humble way, to please give me the willingness to do that and to change me. Now, what I remember about that was that nothing very spectacular happened, except that I was driving on the freeway a few days after that, and I saw the sunset. And it occurred to me that I had never seen the sunset for a long, long time, because my my mind was so preoccupied with other things. I was kind of like Willie Nelson's song, you know, you're always on my mind, you know, alcohol or fixing or changing or doing, doing other things were always on my mind. So it occurred to me that the thought of drinking hadn't been in my mind for quite a number of days then. And I started to get excited about working the program and about doing this thing as it was designed. All about me today is that in my recovery, that I can get stuck in recovery. Now, I don't know if this ever happens to you, but it has happened to me a number of times in the 14 plus years that I've been around here where I can get stuck. And I get to go around this country every weekend or to other countries. And I've done some inventory. I wouldn't want to be wasting my time, you know, as I do that. I've done some inventory of other people's programs. So I'd like to tell you what I've discovered. One of the discoveries I've made is that there are what I call three brands of recovery, or three brands of sobriety. 
And their first brand is where people switch obsessions. They uh, stop drinking, it's fine, they don't drink. But they switch obsessions, and as we do in California, they switch to relationships. You don't do that here, I know that, but I just want to tell you what we do in California. And they get a relationship and they have a cup of coffee and they go back and sit down beside the relationship and they do a little bit of relationship and they talk and do a relationship. Now, they may even stay sober, but they don't get this secret, you know, that we get to have because they're preoccupied with another obsession. Or it could be some other obsession. I just mentioned that because that's kind of common, it seems, in the program. I have nothing against relationships, but I'm just talking about how we tend to switch addictions. I call that low-life uh, recovery. And then there's a second brand where some people get into recovery and they go on fine for a while and they get their kids back and their jobs back and they get clean and their eyes start getting bright again. They start working the program. And then pretty soon it gets to be boring. You know, I, I get thinking, isn't there, isn't there something else to this thing? I've been there. I've, I know what that feels like. And you hear the same old story over and over again. And you hear the same things read. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. And you think, am I a moron? You know, don't I, haven't I heard this before somewhere? Why do I need to get this, why do I need to get this repeated to me again? We're slow. We're slow learners. And uh, we get kind of bored easily. And I have found that for me, what happens to me when I get, get into boredom, I get stuck. And when I get stuck, I want to go under the covers. And I don't want to tell anybody anything about me. You know, I don't want to be sharing. I want to isolate. And I want to remove myself from this program of recovery sober, you know. And I'm a believer that that can happen to us a lot. And as was said at a wonderful meeting I attended yesterday at the Asket Basket, it was said that, you know, when we concentrate on the problem rather than the solution, we can get really, really stuck in this deal. And we can stay there, and we can be there, and maybe we won't drink. Maybe. Only maybe we won't drink. But for sure we'll be miserable, and we'll be dying inside forever. And this thing is supposed to help us to be happy, joyous, and free. What I learned was that in the practice and the application and the working of the steps comes what's called in the 12 and 12, the joy of living. It's kind of like my friend Dr. Paul, he always refers to the French soldiers who in the war, they wore these helmets with a beautiful feather or plume on their helmets. And it had a sort of a, a flare, and they call it the panache. And I think there's program with panache. And the program with panache is where we're living and working in the solution and we're learning to live on a daily basis in some kind of comfortability with unresolved problems. What a concept. We don't have it together. We would probably never have it together. It will probably never be perfect. But because we're working these steps and we're applying these principles and we're interacting with people who are winners, we're, we're somehow living and moving with unresolved problems. And we're getting this thing, this secret, this spark of living that's called the joy of living. And that's what I call the panache, or classy, sort of a classy kind of recovery. Now, I didn't know about this, or was never able to catch on to any of this for a long, long time, because I was stuck for ages. 
And when this man told me to pray for the willingness, things started to change. And when things started to change for me, I found what it really said on page 62. And this is what it said to me. On the bottom paragraph, it said to me, B, this is the how and the why of it. You have to quit playing God because it doesn't work. Hereafter, in this drama of life, God's going to be your director. He's the principal. You're his agent. He's the father, and you're his child. And B, you know what? Most good ideas are simple, but this concept that God is in charge is the keystone of the new and triumphant arch through which you will pass to freedom. Now, when we refer to the promises in Alcoholics Anonymous, we generally refer to the promises on pages 83 and 84. You know, we're going to know know a new freedom and a new happiness. We won't regret the past. And therefore, we call the promises. And what I discovered as I sort of got into this thing called the book and the program was that there are 84 promises all caught in there in the steps. And it's always fascinating to me to find out that on page 62, the word self or selfishness or self-centeredness is mentioned 13 times on page 62. (laughs) Gives me a clue what my problem is. And then after that, after it talks about selfishness and self-centeredness, and you know, that only God can remove this crustedness of selfishness in you be, only God can do that for you. But then it goes on to say, you know, if you let God take your life over be and really, really trust, and really trust, then... You know, you're going to arrive and pass through the keystone, which is going to bring you to freedom. And folks, that's all I ever wanted. That's all I ever wanted was this kind of inner freedom. And then it goes on to give 13 promises. It says, B, when you sincerely take this position, all sorts of remarkable things will follow. You're going to have a new employer, and he's all powerful, and he's going to provide every single thing you need if you stay close to him and perform his work well. (laughs) And when you're established on this footing... You're going to be less and less interested in your own little plans and designs. And you're going to become more and more interested in what you can contribute to other people. What a gift. And all those promises are all lined up there in page 63 for us. All the great things that will happen for us. That we're going to feel new power flowing in. We're going to enjoy peace of mind. Can you imagine? Enjoying peace of mind. We are going to discover that we can face life successfully. And above all, we're going to lose our fear of today and tomorrow and hereafter, and then we are going to be reborn. These are all the gifts of this program. Now, what I discovered was that there are 13 promises for step three. There are six promises for step four. I'm not going to tell you all of them. You can find them yourselves. And uh, there are 10 for step five. And uh, when I got to step six and seven, I found God. I found the God of my understanding today, and I want to share that with you. When I got to step six and I became willing, I asked God for the willingness to get my defects removed, and I humbly asked him to remove them, and I said the prayer, which is on the top of page 76 of the big book, the seven-step prayer, and it goes like this, as I'm sure you well know. My creator, I am now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. And my God appeared to me. And my God was big and broad and roomy and humorous. And my God said to me, B, are you sure? Are you sure that it's okay for you to come to me whether you're good or bad? Are you sure that you know that you don't have to be perfect for me anymore? Are you sure 
that you know that you don't have to be worthy anymore. And I said, yes, Father. And then I knew a little bit of what our priest was talking about at Mass this morning when he talked about this outrageous love of a God. This God who is crazy about us. I got to know a little bit about that. And I got to know what I used to tell other people but never believed it for myself. I used to teach other people, you know, your God loves you so much that he would even know you by your name. Or he would He would carve your name on the palm of his hand and he would stretch out his hand and say, this is Pat's name. Or he would love you so much that he would store up your tears and put them into a little bottle. And every once in a while he would take out this little bottle and he would say, these are Albert's tears. Could you imagine a God who would think that you and I could be that precious? Well, I could believe that God would think that you would be that precious, but I couldn't believe that God would think that I would be that precious because I always felt like this little girl who came from Ireland with freckles and red hair, and I was always scrunched up like Holly Hobby, you know. You know Holly Hobby in the Hallmark store? She says the sweetest thing. She's on cards and plates and mugs. But she's always by herself, you know, and she's just not all fitting in there. And so I knew that God loved everybody else like that, but somehow he left B out. And when I took step seven, I knew that I was included and that God loved me too. And that was an amazing experience. And it's amazing to me because I believe today that I may not have had that experience ever if I hadn't received the unconditional love of the people in Alcoholics Anonymous. I get real touched when I think of them because I remember them. I remember who they were. And Nancy, if you're here this morning, I'm sure you are, if you're here, you'll you'll know that I'm talking about Deke and some of the people that you know who loved me totally and unconditionally. And it would just stroke me and say, you keep coming back, it gets better, it will get better. I never thought it would get better. I thought I'd always be in emotional turmoil and emotional pain. And today I'm here to tell you that a lot of times, a lot of times, I'm living in a mode of being happy, joyous, and free. I went on to discover the promises in steps eight and nine that we know well. And the one I love the best is that we will suddenly realize, we will suddenly realize that God's doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And no, these are not extravagant promises. They're not. Because they are being fulfilled amongst us, sometimes quickly and sometimes slowly. And I discovered that there are ten promises in step ten. And the first one from a woman from the north of Ireland is extraordinary. It says we will cease fighting. (laughs) We'll cease fighting everything and everybody, even alcohol. And it says we'd be placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. I never knew what that meant until a couple of years ago. I used to think, well, what does that mean? Does that mean I won't ever have my own opinion again? (laughs) Hardly. What it means, uh, (laughs) what it means is that I'll be in that wonderful, comfortable spot between being a doormat over here and a bulldozer over here. You know, there's a place in between. And it's, it's on page 85. It says, we'll be placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. It means I will be able to speak my truth assertively and look the world in the eye. 
and I won't ever have to fudge or tell lies again. I'll be able to own the space that's underneath my two feet and own myself and start becoming integrated and be able to tell the truth. What a gift. What a gift. Step 10 is full of wonderful promises. It promises us that we will be, we will get this vital sixth sense, which goes on to, is described in step 11. Now, I'm embarrassed almost to tell you that, that I used to teach people how to pray and meditate. And when I got as far as page 86 and 87 in the big book, I learned what we mean by praying and meditating. Because it tells this alcoholic exactly what I'm supposed to do from the minute I wake up in the morning. Now, I don't know if you have heads like I have, but my head is awake a long time before I am. You know, it wakes me up sometimes at 3 o'clock. And it says, B, come on now, we've got to get into this little resentment here. We've got to get moving, you know. In fact, I have a friend in California who says, my head would destroy me if it didn't need me for transportation. (laughs) And so the big book knows that on page 66. And the big book says to me, B, when you wake up, the minute you wake up, you have to think about the 24 hours ahead. And then it says a real gentle word. It says you consider your plans for the day. It doesn't say you have to do the results. You get in, you know, push, struggle. You know where they say born to shop? I should have born to struggle written all over me, you know. Born to struggle. And it says we consider likely our plans for the day. And before we begin all this stuff, we ask God to direct our thinking, our thought process. And God says, okay, B, I'll get your thinking all sorted out for you. I'll get it all fixed up. You know, we, we won't have to worry about that until next week, and that's all done. We don't have to worry. That happened last year. You know, let's forget about that part. And this is not going to happen until two years down the road. Now, you don't have to do Christmas yet, B. You know, God directs my thinking. And we had a lot, I don't know if you, this is not AA-approved literature, but we do read it out loud at our uh, morning meeting that I go to, my home meeting at 6 o'clock in the morning from the 24-hour day book. But on the 18th of February, we had a wonderful meditation, and it said, uh, it said we will place our cares and our lives to our God, like a skein of wool that's been all tangled up. And we say, God, just disentangle my life for me. Direct my thinking. Fix me that I'm not in such a mess. And what I love about pages 86 and 87, it just doesn't leave me there in the morning. It says, it tells me what I'm supposed to do as I go through the day. It tells me what I'm supposed to do when I'm in doubt. It tells me what I'm supposed to do when I'm agitated. Now, I know you're never agitated because you look like you're real peaceful and calm here, but I get agitated. I go to the bank on a regular basis in the post office, and you know what I have to do? I have to stand in line. And I get agitated. I drive a lot in California. And I have to sit, <coughs> excuse me, in traffic, and I get agitated. The big book <clears throat> tells me everything that I need to know about how to do my life, that and the 12 and 12. And the secrets that it tells me and the promises that it gives me in step 11, it says, you know, be what used to be the hunch or the occasional inspiration will gradually become a working part of your mind. You're going to be able to rely on this inspiration that you're going to develop. You're going to be able to develop this intuitive sense that you already have because you've practiced the 11th step. Now, the operative word, as far as I know, in the 11th step is a word that I don't know really well how to do. It's called, as we go through the day, we pause. 
And my sponsor said, B, where you see pause, you have to write stop. <laughs> I was sharing with um, Albert and Sally last night that I'm in the middle of a huge project right now. I'm always in the middle of something huge. And uh, the huge project that I am in right now is that trying to get together what I call an 11-step house, a place where people can come and pause. Just a place before we go nuts, you know. It's not a detox place. It's a place where our heads, you know, when our heads go crazy and we need to pause. And in Southern California, we're especially crazy and we need places to pause. So I'm in the middle of working this week, I'm hoping. So keep that in your prayers, you know, that God's going to give me, as you say here, a sign. I love the way you talk. <laughs> Did I say that good? So I say, God, you know, I don't want to pray like the way I usually pray, but just give me a sign. I love you people from this part of the world. You know that? And I, when I go to Australia, I, I talk like you do. I just, you know, I try to talk like you do. Anyway, what I know about this deal is that it works, and there's promises all over the place for us. And uh, there are 25 promises in step 11, step 12. And the first one is that loneliness, loneliness that I lived with forever will disappear. How could I be lonely here with you? How could I be lonely? I just feel connected. I feel that you love me and I love you. Maybe not all of you, but a lot of you do. And I feel real connected. And it's, it's marvelous for somebody like me who always felt so separate. I just want to end by saying that I do not know how step 12 works. But I do know that when you, Pat, get something together like this with your committee and you all work hard and you get people from all over the state and you get people from other states and you get this working, this God ripples through these sorts of deals. And the 12th step works, you know, when we sponsor people, when we share, when we fix chairs and do ashtrays and do coffee. God works through all those ways. But I don't know for sure exactly how it happens. I, I really don't know. I do know that, um, you know, I work with new people and I, I, I do what I'm supposed to do in the program. But I never know, you know, if, if, if God works through me or not. And mostly he lets me know that he doesn't. I was sponsoring somebody there some years back, and um, she she was a wonderful gal, and she went to book studies, and she did her inventory and all, but she said to me, B, I will be drinking a glass of wine every day, because I know that I, I can do that. And I kept telling her, you can't, you know, you really can't, you're not supposed to drink. And one morning, she came to that Pomona meeting that Nancy and I used to go to, uh, and she heard this fellow sharing. Somebody whom I didn't care for that much, you know, that, that kind, you know, where you, they'll say the same thing over and over again. And he ended up his pitch the same way as he always did. And he said, this program works best if you don't drink between meetings or you don't use any mind-altering drugs. And when we got into the car to leave, she held my two hands and she said, B, we're not supposed to drink between meetings. Now, that was after six months, and I had eaten breakfast with her. I talked with her on the telephone. She had come over to my office. We had talked, and we had talked, and we had talked. And I told her every time we're not supposed to drink, and she never heard me. And you see, when I'm taking inventory of somebody who's uh, sharing, and I don't think that they ought to be sharing at all, and God's working over in another corner over here, and they're going, oh, that's exactly what I needed to hear. You see, it's so mysterious, this deal. It's so mysterious. And we can't put ourselves in, you know, the page 89 says, we never, we never criticize. And there's a speaker on our circuit who says, we, he doesn't know whether we don't get the ne or the v of never. Because sometimes we do. And we don't know how God works, because God's working all the time through this deal. 
And when I say that to you, I'm reminded of the words of a, a play that Shakespeare wrote called King Lear, where he says to his daughter Cordelia, as they're about to go to prison, he says, and we shall laugh and pray and sing and tell old tales and laugh at but- of butterflies and we'll talk about court news, who's in and who's out, and take upon ourselves the mystery of things as though we were God's spies. You and I, in this wonderful program, we get to take upon ourselves the mystery of things, as though we were God's spies. And we get to see people's eyes lighting up. We get to see their skin changing, their physical appearance changing. We get to see their attitudes changing. And as we continue to live in the solution, we get to know what it really means to be happy, joyous, and free. To those of you who have worked these steps, and have kept the wonderful traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous for long, long years before I came, I want to tell you that I thank you for laying the groundwork that I would have a place to come when I was dying, when I was lost, and you found me. May God bless you, and I love you, and please keep me in your prayers. Thank you.